welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition in our Arbitral Insights podcast series. I'm Susie Savage, an international arbitration lawyer and counsel based in Reed Smith's London office. Now, I think it is fair to say that a current hot topic in many dispute resolution jurisdictions is dissatisfaction with the witness statement process, and in particular, doubts about the quality of witness recollection at trial. International arbitration is no exception to this. One of the jurisdictions which has now taken a lead in tackling the issue is the English High Court, which has just enacted a major, some would say radical, reform to the requirements for witness statements for trial. Dispute resolution systems do not exist in silos, and trends in one forum can influence others. So today, we're going to explore how these English reformers, an experiment if you want to view it like that, could also have a major influence on how the international arbitration community responds to the problems with witness evidence in the future. I'm delighted today to be joined in this task by my colleague Daniel Newbound, a knowledge management lawyer from Reed Smith's London office. Dan is our in-house expert on English High Court Civil Procedure at Reed Smith and is going to provide the litigation perspective and help me as an arbitration professional understand the impact of the reforms. Hello Dan. Hi, Susie. Delighted to be joining you today to discuss this topic. Before we start looking at the reforms, perhaps it would be good to provide some context and talk about the problem with witness statements from the English High Court perspective. Sure. So from the English High Court perspective, the the problem is that statements have moved away from their original purpose, which was to provide upfront written evidence in advance of trial of a witness's evidence on disputed facts. Instead, what they've become is a proxy for lawyers arguing their client's case, trying to tie together all the threads of um, their case into a coherent story and present the case in in the best possible light at trial. To digress slightly, my view is that when you read a really comprehensive witness statement in English high court litigation, it's almost like a work of art. You can marvel at the professional skill involved. To to, to adapt a famous quote, um, everyone's got a book inside them. Um, for some lawyers, for some litigation lawyers, that's become witness statements at trial. But that's not their true purpose. And what you're getting there is the voice of the lawyer and not the witness. The other problem is that even if you cut the statements back down to basics, are you really getting an accurate recollection from the witness? There's a growing awareness, uh, at least from the English High Court judges, in particular following a decision of um, Mr Justice Leggett, as he then was, in a case called Guessman, of the science behind witness evidence and the potential that the way we as lawyers prepare statements can corrupt the recollection of the witness. So even what the witness say might not actually be what they can recall, but a hybrid version, influenced by issues such as hindsight, the result they want from the case, and in particular, what they have subsequently seen in documentary evidence. I mean, that certainly all rings a bell with me where I have seen 200 page witness statements. It would be extraordinary to think that a witness really could recollect quite that much detail and information. So can you give me an example of how this causes problems in the English High Court litigation, particularly at trial? 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples. Just to pick out one um, recent case, a standard company ownership dispute. I mean, not standard to the parties, but standard for, we, for, for us as lawyers. The witness evidence in the case took two weeks to hear at trial and involved 18 witness statements, 18 witnesses giving written statements. Think of the phenomenal amount of time that's taken to prepare the evidence and for the judge to then hear it. And when the judges heard it, he subsequently decided, well, look, these statements are about things that happened 10 years ago. And a lot of these witnesses have inherent interests in the outcome of the litigation. So actually, I can't just I can't rely on what they've said at all. It's simply not credible. So he's ended up discounting all the evidence and having to rely on the documents and inherent probabilities. So think about the amount of waste that's gone in to preparing evidence, which has been of no practical utility at trial. And that's not an isolated incident either. So that's the problem in the high court. But I guess my question to you, Susie, would be, is this also an issue in international arbitration? Well, just before I go on to that, I have to say I work on many cases that are 20 years old. So, you know, you, you, you cite an example of ten, something that happened 10 years ago. Much of what I have been doing over the last 10 years has been on cases that are 20 years old. So I don't think it's any coincidence that the ICC Commission on Arbitration ADR created a task force on maximising the prohibitive value of witness evidence, which produced a report earlier this year examining the issues with witness evidence in international arbitration. And I think it's fair to say that feedback gathered for the purposes of the report shows that many of the problems you've just described also occur in international arbitration. I think what's particularly interesting about the ICC report is that it is supported by an independent scientific study conducted by Professor Kimberly Wade, who I've heard speak a couple of times, and she's from the University of Warwick. She really drills down into the ways that witness recollection can become tainted by the litigation process. For example, the study conducted a witness memory experiment using a group of adults and the fact pattern of a commercial dispute between a printing and flooring company. The study demonstrated that people biased in favour of a particular outcome who were then exposed to inaccurate post-event information, tended to be influenced away from the accurate recollection of events. So I think we've established that credibility of witness memory is definitely a thing which the dispute resolution community needs to confront. The question is, what can we do about it? Dan, can you describe the new English reforms for me? Yeah, so in, in response to the concerns of judges around witness evidence, the High Court established a working group of judges and practitioners which made produced a report making recommendations which have been incorporated into a new practice direction 57AC. Um, the, the numbers show how many practice directions get ended, end up getting issued in the in English High Court procedure. This practice direction took effect earlier this year. Um, it's going to apply to all trial witness statements, um, although I think in reality, it's going to have an influence a bit wider than that, particularly around you know big interim applications. I think it's worth noting that, as I, as I sort of flagged a moment ago, English High Court rules are really quite detailed, and this new practice direction is no exception. It's not the place to delve into that detail now, but in what, it, what this reform tries to do in very broad summary is more intensively manage the statement preparation process through a mix of mandatory requirements and qu- like quasi-mandatory guidance. Some of these requirements are aimed at making witness statements shorter and more focused, so no more arguing the case, no more just describing what's in documents. But there is a sort of more idealistic basis to the reform, and 
an aim of improving the quality of the recollection given by the witness witnesses. And I think that's the really significant part. So just to pull out a few examples, lawyers are now going to be required to prepare statements based on a proper interview process in which they have they interview the witness, avoid leading questions, and, in, and as far as possible, finalise the statement in as min, in minimal drafts. So the idea is you're getting the, the recollection of the witness rather than the lawyer, as I flagged earlier, writing the statement for them. There's also a real focus on avoiding contamination of witness recollection through the use of documents and statement preparation. And I think this is, this is a real key aspect of the reform. There's specific guidance on not exposing witnesses to documents they did not see at the time of the events. So like post-litigation, post-dispute documents, which set out the lawyer's version of the case rather than what the witness can remember. Very significantly, the statements must now list in an annex any documents which a witness has been referred to during the witness statement process. Now that's a major um, reform. So you interview a witness, you've got to tell the other side what you showed the witness in the form of documents whilst you were taking their statement. These requirements are backed up by sanctions and both the lawyer and the the lawyer drafting the statement and the witness must sign certificates of compliance confirming that they have followed the recommended preparation process. So the witness effectively becomes involved in policing compliance. Sanctions-wise, uh, the sanctions range from being ordered to redraft the statements, a pre-trial review, to the exclusion of evidence altogether. So there's some real teeth backing up these reforms. Wow. So how do you think this is going to play out in practice then? I think there's no doubt this is going to substantially reform. Uh, this is a substantial reform. It's going to really change the way that English lawyers prepare statements in, in high court litigation. We're going to have to spend a lot more time planning and carefully considering how we deal with witnesses. All that time is probably going to be probably going to offset the fact that witness statements are, are going to be shorter. So there'll be no 200-page statements anymore, Susie. But they, <laughs> but you know that time that would have been spent, some of that time that would have been spent drafting that long statement is going to have to be spent planning carefully how to interview and how to make sure the recollection is not spoiled. I think the key thing for me is it's almost someone as if someone switched on the lights about the recollection issue amongst English high court litigators. It's all new to us now, but I think we're going to see English high court litigators or English lawyers becoming hyper aware of the problem of witness recollection, not least because bad preparation will become a point to exploit with opponents and vice versa. So I think everyone's going to be Coming, becoming much more conscious about adopting a defensible position, much like you see now already in the disclosure process. It's going to mean a much greater focus on witness recollection at trial, and there's going to be much more room for each party to challenge the true the credibility of the other side's witnesses during cross-examination. So just to give you an example of that, that point we talked earlier, I talked about earlier about the, the list of documents you've got to give at the end of the witness statement. Well, your opponent's going to be going through that list and they're going to be trying to take the point at trial that your witness was overexposed to certain types of documents and therefore their recollection has been contaminated. I think we're going to also see more cases where the judges discount the evidence of a party altogether as unreliable. And if you think about that, that's really the knockout blow. You have a, you can talk about pre-trial sanctions, but you've, you've gone to trial with a strategy set up, which is your witness evidence is going to be taken into account, account, and then the judge loses confidence in it and discounts it altogether. I think that's the real sanction that the, the reforms can bring. So that's the um, English High Court approach. Susie, what about the ICC report? What did that re- recommend in terms of the approach for international arbitration? 
Well, I think that that's, it's interesting that although both reports concur that more could be done better to protect witness recollection, they differ substantially in how they propose to get there. The ICC report stops short of recommending that institutions or parties adopt mandatory rules in the arbitral process. One reason for this is the need for flexibility and a recognition that sometimes narrative statements are needed so a party can tell its story. I think this also reflects the fact that international arbitration is primarily a party-led process, so it's perhaps more difficult for tribunals to become more involved in intensive management of the process in the way that the English courts do. So instead of mandatory rules, the ICC report we talked about has a section jam-packed full of voluntary practical measures which it recommends that parties and tribunals adopt throughout the life cycle of a dispute to help preserve witness recollection. For example, one potential measure aimed at in-house counsel is to avoid taking a party line with potential witnesses at an early stage of the dispute. Dan, what's your reaction then to the ICC report from the perspective of a high court litigator? Yeah, I think one of the really one of the really interesting points here is how the two approaches can influence the other. A criticism I would have of the the English reforms is that they are they're slightly inflexible and that they presume a, a demarcation of the evidence gathering process. So you get to a specific point in the case and then you speak to the witness for the first time and then the, and then you take their statement. Whereas in practice, the phases often run into each other. So I think that emphasis from the ICC report on the early adoption of measures is crucial because often damage can be done at a very early stage during in-house investigation. And the external counsel will meet the witness and they've already predetermined pretty much what they're going to tell them. The other aspect of the ICC report, which I think is great, is the emphasis on the being aware of the problem and being aware of our role as lawyers in how we can influence better witness recollection. There are so many variables involved in the dispute resolution process that I think just the common sense, the situational awareness, having that internal klaxon sound saying, stop, think. If, if, if I do something, for example, if I copy all these witnesses into this email, that could taint their recollection, will go a long way. How about the reverse, Susie? Do you think the high court reforms will influence international arbitration practice? Unquestionably, in certain respects. For a starter, arbitration practitioners need to be aware of the reforms because if they go to the English high court for a post-award challenge, then evidence produced for the purposes of the challenge at that point will fall within the ambit of the reforms, something I'm not sure everyone has quite yet appreciated. Beyond that, I think the voluntary incorporation of measures may become more commonplace in arbitrations involving English arbitrators or, or counsel who have that hyper-awareness that you mentioned earlier. I think we will also see the influence on witness recollection becoming much more of a live issue during cross-examination at final hearings. At this point, the only arbitral institution to formally adopt new requirements for witness evidence is the LMAA. These are really aimed at restricting content to the fact rather than maintaining the purity of recollection. It may be that the dispute resolution community will use England as a test ground before going any further. If the English reform descends into an excess of procedural disputes and trials become too contentious, then it will probably discourage the wider adoption of similar measures. I think one interesting point generally is what happens if the issue of recollection becomes so contentious that arbitrators begin discounting the value of witness evidence altogether. Could this be a further incentive for some parties to adopt the approach of the Prague rules? And we would then see tribunals becoming more proactive in minimising witness evidence. 
So, Dan, it's been an interesting discussion. Perhaps we could round it off with some practical thoughts, please. Okay, two quite broad things from me. Firstly, my awareness point. Issues with recollection are a thing. You can influence them as lawyers. Don't be an ostrich and bury your head in the sand about it. And secondly, I think common sense. You can take steps throughout the process, sensible steps, and stop and think and do things which will help preserve recollection. Yeah, I totally agree. And for me, one of the key points is early adoption. If your statements are challenged in any litigation procedure, you want to have a defensible process. So you can give the arbitrator or judge confidence in the witness recollection and that you have taken matters seriously right from the start. Where we go next with it all is going to be interesting. In fact, if you want to explore these issues in more detail, this podcast is a follow-up to the Reed Smith webinar, Eight Points of Contention in the International Arbitration Community with Respect to Witness Evidence. The webinar, which went out on 21st September 2021, was part of Paris Arbitration Week. There was a great lineup of guest speakers, including Dr. Kimberly Wade, and leading practitioners who debated topics such as cross-examination does not enhance the value of witness evidence to save in rare situations documents should be accorded more probative value than witness testimony. More details for you in the show notes if you're interested. Well, then it just leaves me to say thank you very much to Dan for joining me today. I hope that has been a useful and practical review, and thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune in to the next edition of our Arbitral Insights series. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.